This is a poem by Izumi Shikibu, who is a Zen, um, a Zen nun of many centuries ago. And it goes, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. When I, in, in 1998, I, was, I went to Burma to practice as a Buddhist nun. And I had been a student of Sayada Upandita, who some of you are familiar with and may have practiced with. And I had decided to go there so I could really deepen my practice. And, and um, I wanted to practice for an extended period of time. And I ended up getting to stay there for a year and practice. And I was very inspired by the nuns, by the history of the Buddhist nuns. I would read the stories of them and I thought, if I'm going to practice, I'm going to really practice. I need to do it like the nuns did it. So I went to Burma and ordained with under him. I had been this, a student of his for quite some time and also wanted to see what it was like to practice in the monastery um, under his guidance. So I traveled to Burma and I w- stayed out in a forest monastery about an hour north of Rangoon. And it was really large. It was really a retreat center and lots of monks and nuns were living there some Westerners, there were maybe, well, there were many different people over the amount of time that I was there, but um, usually a core of at least 10 Westerners with more coming in. What it meant to be a nun was that my head was shaved. I had to wear the robes of a nun, which were sort of a pale peach pink color. And that I had to keep to ten precepts. And these precepts were the five precepts that we all keep here on this retreat. But the other five included that I would not, um, that I wouldn't eat after 12 noon, so just two meals a day before 12 o'clock, that I would not sleep in a high and luxurious bed, which was not a problem because you get there and they hand you a mat and you roll it out, and that I would... um, not sing, dance, or adorn the body in any way, which was actually quite difficult. And finally, not touching money. And this was, these were the commitments for being what's called a ten precept, or an eight precept, or ten precept nun. I was known as a pavajika, which is a word in Pali that means, um, that means a home lever. And I've also heard my teacher talk about it as one who leaves home to extinguish the flames and the fires of the kalesa, or the, the, the things that attack the mind, our greed, our hatred, and delusion, leaving home to extinguish these fires. So I went there because, as I said, because I wanted to practice with my teacher and also because I had been told, and I'm not exactly sure where this came from, but I had been told by someone that this would be the best place to practice in Asia, whatever I did. And I wanted to, I wanted to reach um, great states of awakening, and I thought, if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen in Burma. I was a little concerned about the politics of what it meant to be in that country in this time and whether my presence there would add legitimacy to a government that most of us know is major human rights abuses. But after a lot of reflection, I decided to go. 
And I'll just start with what was really wonderful. The first thing that was really wonderful was spending a year completely on Donna. There was no, no payment for being there. I would give a donation when I left, but actually the entire thing was supported by other people. So every single thing I did, all the food I ate, medicine if I were sick, the home that I stayed in, everything was completely, a little hut, not a home, hut, was completely given to me out of other people's generosity, which is quite an extraordinary thing to experience and very, very rare. It was also amazing to be there in this place of great reverence for the Dharma. So here we are in this culture where Buddhism is this slightly fringe religion. You know, people, it was on the cover of Time magazine, I do admit to that, a few, a few like last year at some point. But basically, Buddhism, it's, it's unusual, whereas in Burma, it's a Buddhist country, and there's this sense of practicing in a place where it's completely validated and loved. And that the fact that I was there practicing, there was just so much um, joy that people, that people experienced by seeing that someone would give up their privilege and go to that country to practice. And so it felt like meditation was considered really important as opposed to consumerism or uh, violence or war. Our tradition here, where we're practicing, comes, it's really partially rooted in this tradition in Burma. And it's, it's quite remarkable to be there in the original state that, it, that, um, that many of my teachers had gone to, practiced, learned from, and come back to, uh, to America, and then started teaching from this way. And um, so what we're working with and what is taught there was, as as hopefully we're teaching you, a mindfulness that's moment to moment. So we were really trying to, from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, this is the schedule, complete silence, same as here. Um, No reading, no writing, the same thing, same as here. Moment to moment mindfulness, not a single, the goal, not that one could easily do it necessarily, but the attempt was to be mindful every single second. And that's what they said. You get off the airplane, they said, welcome, be mindful. (laughs) And I said, okay, I'll try. (laughs) Um, Because what the mindfulness does and what we're learning here, mindfulness, other words for mindfulness include uh, non-distractedness, recollection, recollecting the mind, um, presence of mind, or other words for sati or mindfulness. And this is what we're practicing here. It's also through this mindfulness, as we practice the mindfulness, concentration begins to develop. And as you get concentrated, concentration then is just the unification of the mind. So the sati, the mindfulness, is the remembering. The concentration is the mind getting collected and gathered. And as, it do, as we do this with the continuity that we're all attempting to practice here, um, moment to moment, when you're you know, eating, when you're doing your yogi job, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're putting on your clothes, always mindfulness, always, always this, this development, this cultivation that ultimately leads to wisdom and insight. So it's interesting for us because um, I hope that, that there's, there's been um, practicing on your part of this continuity 
And if so, it's always curious to look at where are the places that are most difficult to be mindful? Where's the place where you just lose it completely? Have you noticed? I know for me in my early days of practice, it, the second I got into the shower, gone. You know, I don't know what happened. I got out a little while later. It was, I just missed it. Eating was like that also in the early days of my practice. I just, would, I just would eat, and it was really good, and I would get into it, and I'd forget about mindfulness. So it's important when we're developing this continuity, if you can sort of pinpoint the place in your practice where you, where you lose it, where you space out, then this can become an area to really step up the mindfulness. So I, I sort of see it as a game. When I began to realize, oh, when I'm eating, I'm not so mindful, then I said, okay, Diana, you're going to double your mindfulness here. So I would go down to eat, and I would try to be super careful and aware and noticing as I was standing in line and noticing the judgments and worrying if I was taking too much and being aware of the worrying and everything that was, ha- that was happening, it became a part of my mindfulness, this moment-to-moment. It was wonderful to be, particularly in the early days of my practice, to be in places like Spirit Rock, um, where it's so quiet and so there's so much support here to practice. I mean, it's it's beautiful. There's um, the, everybody is really trying to be as respectful as possible. The weather it changes, but it's really quite lovely here. I want to con contrast that with some of what my experience was like upon arriving in Burma. So I showed up at what I thought was the best place to practice in Asia, and, or so I thought. And um, I was expecting this really beautiful, rarefied, silent, quiet experience, just like we're experiencing here, and um, not the case. Um, the first thing was that there were it was extremely noisy. The center there was under construction. So I showed up, and it was just from basically about 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night, there was hammering, sawing, um, people talking, shouting. They were building things. I was staying in this little hut called a kuti, and right probably within you know 20 feet of my kuti, people were building another one because they were just building them all around the center. It was quite extraordinary how much construction was going on. And then there were all the, and it was basically done by these young people, and they were all talking and hanging out. And finally, at seven o'clock at night or so, they would stop working, and um, then they would pull out their guitars and start singing songs and playing all night, which was not really fun. Um, it was hot. It was incredibly hot. Even in the winter, it was really hot. It was usually somewhere in the 90s, if not in the hundreds. And my hut was made of concrete, and so it would feel like by the end of the day, the sun would beat on it all day, and at the end, I, it was basically a sauna. So I was meditating in a sauna, was what it felt like, and I would just be covered in sweat and just completely miserable, but what are you going to do? I mean, there, that was where I was. There was nothing to do. The, there were lots and lots and lots of bugs and reptiles. <laughs> so there were snakes and spi- there were spider. There were big spiders. I mean, we're talking big. <laughs> I'm not talking little spiders. I'm talking, yeah, big. <laughs> no, not that big, but maybe about the size of a, a plate, kind of. Um, there were 
there were these things I didn't know what they were so I they were they looked to me like half lizard and half snake they sort of were like a snake with legs and I called them uglies because I didn't know their name because <laughs> they were quite quite uh, scary mosquitoes uh, giant flying beetles uh, ants every I mean you name it it was it was a wildlife adventure uh, the, the food I hated. Now, other people have since gone to this monastery, and apparently they've really upgraded the kitchen. But when I was there, it was just, it was wood-burning stoves. And I wasn't quite sure of the hygiene situation. And I was often sick and had stomach problems. And then when I wasn't sick, I was often worrying that I was going to be sick. So it was, it was, there was a lot of what I, we might call external dukkha, external suffering. Ah, it was, a lot of the time I just... I just felt I was quite miserable, to be truthful. And um, once with, I was eating, and the food is, how do I describe it? It's kind of like a bowl of oil with some vegetables floating in it. <laughs> it wasn't that tasty. And um, once I was eating, and I was chewing something, and I felt this really odd consistency in my mouth. And I kind of thought, I wonder what it is. So I pulled it out. And I looked at it, and it was an eyeball. (laughs) But it wasn't a human. It was a fish. But um, I kind of, I remember this moment of having this nausea and this aversion just going up and down my body and uh, nausea and noting it, nausea, nausea, fear, wanting to throw up, wanting to throw up. So I sort of put it down on my plate and um, next to my plate, and I pointed to my friend who I was there with, and I poked her, and I said, eyeball. (laughs) And she... She kind of nodded, and then the next day sent me a note that said, I didn't want to tell you, but you ate one the day before. <laughs> so it, was pretty, it was pretty hard. And I'm sort of, um, I'm not, I'm, I, I like backpacking, I like being in the wilderness, but I'm not, I, I come from suburban place, so, it, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm just not used to this kind of thing. And I know in other cultures that this is actually, like, I don't want in any way to seem like I'm saying, oh, this is, this is such an odd culture. It was odd for me, but it was actually w- within that culture, it, it was completely normal. And I really respect the, um, the way that this culture manifested. Um, but I don't know, you know, you've seen that show Fear Factor. <laughs> Maybe you haven't, but it's where you have to do things like eat bugs and spiders and so forth. And I've heard the uh, Mexican comedian George Lopez say, in your country, you call it uh, the fear factor. In our country, we call it the family barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to put that out. There was also internal obstacles, okay? There was, there was fear, there was sadness, there was a lot of loneliness. I had, I had left my friends, my family, I'd left everything. There was um, a lot of hypochondria, a lot of doubt. What was I doing here? Why did, why did I come here? What was I thinking? Uh, worry, all sorts of mental... I don't know if any of you have experienced any of these on this retreat, but possibly you have. It was not pleasant, as you know. And everything was seen as an obstacle to my practice. And that was sort of the bottom line. I had shown up in this place trying to practice in what I thought would be the best environment I possibly could. And instead, I was miserable. And I was, and I was thinking, everything is an obstacle. Everything is preventing me from really being able to practice. If only there weren't bugs, then I could practice. If only there weren't snakes and spiders, then I could practice. 
only I weren't lonely, then I could practice. So when I, we throw the word practice around a lot. When I say practice, what I mean is, well, I have heard Robert Thurman say, practice, 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 when is the performance? But I think what we're really referring to here is the steadfast, repetitive cultivation and development of skills. So obviously one can practice the piano, one can practice tennis, one can practice anything. This is, this is practice. It's the repetition. It's doing it again and again and learning and seeing the results. Spiritual practice, as we know, is a vehicle to um, developing wisdom, developing kindness, compassion, developing self-knowledge. So when, we, when I speak broadly about practice and I say I couldn't practice, that's essentially what I'm, what I'm really meaning here. I had a very, very tight and specific notion of practice. I thought I was going to practice in this beautiful, perfect place. My mind was going to get extremely calm and clear and precise, and then boom, one day I would be completely transformed, and that would be it. End of spiritual practice. I'm done. I'm all set. It was a very, very naive notion. (laughs) Mary's laughing. Um, (laughs) So how did I do it? You know, what did I do? I began to sort of numb out a bit. I began to get really angry. I felt really unhappy a lot of the time. I stuck things in my ears. I tried to just get more and more concentrated because I thought the more concentrated I get, the more I could keep everything out. I I really felt like everything was conspiring against me to keep me from practicing And I sort of walked around like this internally. That was the mind state, aversion, aversion, stay away. So why was I suffering so much? First of all, I had really strong expectations about what the place was supposed to be like. So expectations are a normal part of being human, of being alive. I was riding, um, driving down this, uh, the freeway, the Richmond Bridge, for those of you who live nearby. And as some of you know, they've been doing construction just endlessly on that bridge. And so every time you drive over it, there's a big sign that says, expect delays between November or such and such. So there's always a sign about when to expect delays. And one day I was driving past it, and the sign was broken, and everything was missing except expect (laughs) in really big letters. And I just thought, okay, this this is our culture. It's always setting us up to expect. So we want to be happy. We know we can set set something up so that we're going to be happy, and then sometimes we end up being quite disappointed. That was what was happening in my case. It's important for you being here to really check into your expectations. We mentioned this some, but it's often we don't even know that we have them. But when you can get clear and keep asking yourself, what's my motivation? What do I think is supposed to happen? And then see if the more clear you can get, the more you can say, okay, that's just an expectation. It's not necessarily the way things are supposed to be. And we get a little less disappointed when we really know what these expectations are. What do you expect? That your retreat will be like last retreat? (laughs) It might, but it also might not. Do you expect that you're going to have a lot of bliss? 
a lot of completely peaceful, concentrated mind states. Or maybe you expect that you're going to suffer the whole time. You should look at these expectations. Anyway, it's helpful, is what I'm saying, to look at the expectations we have. I was also suffering because I was seeing all of these things as obstacles to my practice. I felt like I couldn't practice because of the heat and the bugs and the food and the nausea and the everything that was happening felt like it was preventing me from being able to practice. So again, it's interesting for all of us to reflect, what are your obstacles? What are you the things that you consider prevent you from being able to practice well? So for instance, Wes talked about the five hindrances last night. Sometimes we get in a mind state, well, if only I weren't sleepy, then I could practice. Or when the body pain goes away, then I can really practice. Or if the person next to me would stop coughing, then I could practice. Or, you know, there's an endless list of things that we feel if they would change, then we could really practice. Then we could really get into our spiritual development and transform our body and mind and become perfect people and no one would ever dislike us again. I mean, these are the kind of weird (laughs) but true (laughs) realistic mental states that we have. When um, I, I like to call this kind of mind the if-only mind. If only I didn't have such and such. If only my mother weren't sick, then I could come and practice more frequently. I mean, it operates so many different ways in our life. And what can be extremely helpful is to notice it, to actually give it a label, a name. When you see that if-only mental state arising in the mind, just say, oh, if-only mind. It's very helpful because then you know, oh, there it is again. It's a setup. It's a setup to suffer, essentially. It's as though we experience um, some things are acceptable in our experience and some things are not. So we can have mindfulness with when the mind is feeling concentrated and peaceful, but we can't have mindfulness when we're judging ourselves. Or we can't have mindfulness when we're angry because that feels unacceptable. For some people, it feels it's really hard to be with pain. The second we feel pain, we want to move around and try to fix it and change it and make it be something else. For other people, it's really hard to be with pleasant sensations, to be with joy, to simply be in peace. Maybe we're not used to it. Maybe we've never experienced these mental states before. So what is it that is acceptable and what's not acceptable? And sort of finding that out and beginning to broaden a little, to open up to more of your experience. We often find coping mechanisms to deal with things that we're, when we're unhappy, when something isn't acceptable. So very early on in my practice, I really didn't like walking meditation. And um, just as a side note, now I really do like it. So it can change. <laughs> but um, early on, I didn't like it. So I just, but I knew I needed to do it. It seemed important. And I could see the benefit, intellectually understood the benefit of doing walking meditation. So I would kind of make myself do it. And I would just sort of, okay, just go and really kind of push through it. And after a while, 
I was doing it and I was starting to, but it, it was like I was kind of missing the experience. I was missing the sense, I, I didn't even notice that I was averse, that I had aversion. Oh, dislike, boredom. I could have noticed the boredom. I could have noticed that I was unhappy. But instead, I sort of created a coping mechanism. How can I get through it? So notice if you have, if you create coping mechanisms, you might numb out when you don't want to be with something that feels like an obstacle. You might start to feel like you're falling asleep. You might try to push through something. Can we begin to notice what's happening in the full experience and be with it? Just a note about working with pain. Working with pain can be really hard. It can really exhaust the mind. So sometimes it's quite skillful to use a few coping mechanisms when working with pain. So for instance, if you come into a sitting and you're feeling, your mind feels very kind of clear and you feel pretty energetic and pretty much some happiness in the mind, then it might be really appropriate. And you're having, say, leg pain. It might be appropriate to say, okay, I'm going to spend this time really being with the pain. And so feeling it and noticing its texture and shape and its movement and what happens and how it expands and contracts and really being with it. Other times you come into the sitting and your mind is tired and you're um, you just don't have a lot of concentration. And, it, it, and the second you feel the pain, you just sort of, uh, it, it feels too much. It's overwhelming. Times like this, it's very appropriate to simply focus on the breathing. Keeping the mind off, off it can be quite a skillful means. And then maybe from time to time, checking in, feeling the pain, noticing the experience, coming back to the breathing. So all of these things, these little clues that I'm giving you, I had to learn for myself when I was in Burma because I was really, really unhappy and I was suffering and I was seeing everything as obstacles and I was coping and I was, as I said, I was putting things in my ears just to stop the noise. It was a gradual discovery process for me and... um, Sometimes we're in the midst of suffering and we don't even know it. You know, it just, you're in it. You're just so in your suffering. And then after a while, maybe you kind of come up for air and you realize, oh, God, I was unhappy. And then you can see it a little more clearly. So I think for me, it took some months, but I began to see that I was really trying to push away my experience and not, re- not being willing to be with things. And there was a moment that was a turning point moment for me when I was, uh, I was meditating. After a while, I began to get quite concentrated, and this was maybe three or four months into it. And I would have these sittings late in the afternoon where I felt really concentrated. And then because I was so, my mind was so quiet, I was convinced something incredible was going to happen to me. Like if I just, just could really be in these sittings, maybe I'd get enlightened that sitting. I mean, I don't know. I was really, really excited about these particular peri- this particular set of sittings. And um, so one day, and as I said to you, we can't eat after 12 noon as a Buddhist nun. The only thing you can eat is you can, you can drink. You can drink uh, 
like sugared water kind of juice sort of they they had this stuff it was really actually quite scary it was orange colored water that my friend nicknamed agent orange and um we really were were worried about what was inside it but anyway um so i was sitting meditating in this deep state convinced that maybe enlightenment would happen this particular day and suddenly as if far off in the distance there was this kind of it was a knocking sound. And I, at first I couldn't really hear it and then got a little louder. And so I, I, I got up and I, and I just sort of broke my concentration, walked to the door, opened to the door. Um, and I, there was this young boy standing there holding a cup of this juice. And he said, Madam Juice, or Sister Juice. And I just went, get out! <laughs> Because I was so, I was, I felt like he had disturbed my, my meditation, you know, get, I I couldn't believe, anyway, I couldn't believe it, as you can imagine, I felt horrible, he was about 14 years old, I'd yelled at this kid, and I thought, I'm, here I am, I'm so attached to having my meditation be a particular way, and having it be so good, and getting enlightened, and all of these things, that I could not even be kind to another human being. It was quite a learning for me. And so it was from that moment on that I began to see it's time to not keep pushing everything out. It's time to actually let things in and begin to see things for what they are, to use the mindfulness that I had developed (laughs) over this time and really turn it on what was happening in the moment, my direct experience of the moment. I started to create a list for myself, and that list was things that I tried to keep out so that I could practice, so I could really see it for myself. I began to meditate with noise, so it just became hearing. Lots of loud banging, hearing, hearing, aversion, hating it, wanting to scream, aversion, noise, hearing. Just know it. That was it. It became noise. The heat, hot, burning, tightness, hating it, aversion. I was having a lot of aversion attacks, obviously. Loneliness. It was just loneliness. I began to see that it wasn't about getting rid of experience. And it wasn't about having a particular kind of experience that I could practice with. It wasn't about not having obstacles. It was about having a mind that could be with whatever is arising. It's not what we're handed, but it's how we relate to what we're handed. And this, of course, is true in life, outside of the retreat experience, as well as on retreat. The suffering comes when we can't be, or we think we can't be with the experience. Notice when you're with an experience that you think you're with, but you actually might have some aversion to. So sometimes we can be, we might have knee pain, and we're pain, pain, you know, being with the pain. But suddenly, if you listen, this is a really great meditation trick. Listen to your notes, okay? Listen to the quality of your note. If you're noting, pain, 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 it's a good chance that you're not really being present with it, that you're in some way trying to push it away. 
Can we open to the direct experience of our lives? Can we be with things exactly as they are? This is this great teaching that we've learned, that we practice on this retreat and that we see. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Wes said it in a different way the other night. He said, don't take anything personally. You know you're clinging because there's a really, really good, obvious proof of it. The mind is clinging when there's suffering, or you're suffering when your mind is clinging. So in other words, am I clinging? Well, am I suffering? It's a good way to find out. If I'm suffering, I'm clinging. There's some aversion, attachment, inability to be with things as they are. Thinking that this thing belongs to me is mine. It's my pain. I'm sad. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm so angry. We're invited in this practice to really kind of settle back and just know, oh, anger is arising. It's arising in this mind and body. It doesn't belong to anyone, per se. It's just, it's a set of conditions that have come together, caused by something, who knows what, but the anger is arising, being with the anger. And it's pain in the belly and contraction and a vibration in the chest, and it's a whole bunch of things, but it's not, it doesn't belong to you. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. The basic mindfulness practice gives us the tools to be able to open to our full experience. It's like we start with the building blocks and we practice with the breath. And for those of you who are listening to me and thinking, oh, you know, I'm just having a hard enough time staying with my breath, that's great, no problem, stay with your breath. Because this is what develops the, the, the tool of mindfulness. It's a skill. It's sometimes I think of it as a muscle. And how do muscles strengthen? You work them. You know, the Buddha said, uh, he said, with every drop of water, the water bucket fills. So meaning if you have a bucket and you put a, little, a drop of water in it, it may not seem like much. We try to feel mindful. We try to practice mindfulness. But it, we, maybe the whole sit, we were only mindful for three breaths. But ultimately, we look down in the bucket, and the water bucket is full. It's a cultivation practice. With every drop of water, the water bucket fills. Mindfulness is the support that allows us to see clearly. And through that, through the mindfulness, our wisdom deepens. Mindfulness and wisdom, they really go hand in hand. And it's like as we can be present with our experience, with all of our experience, even the stuff we don't want to be present with, we begin to notice what is true about the experience. An analogy that's used in the suttas that's kind of weird, but I like, is um, mindfulness is like the neck of an elephant, and wisdom is like its head. Okay, so... It, the, the head obviously needs the neck to be able to both exist and also to turn around and to look and to see clearly and for the elephant to function. And the mindfulness is the support. So the wisdom rests on top of the mindfulness. 
it's also said that mindfulness itself, the, let's say it this way, absence of mindfulness is said to be a very narrow state where the presence of mindfulness is said to be a state that even can lead to boundlessness. It's boundless states of mind. That's this quality of mindfulness. The mindfulness can be extremely narrow and precise with the breath, noticing the rising and falling, the movement, the sensation, the stretching, the expansion, the contraction, whatever is going on, we can feel it with our mind. Our mindfulness knows and we feel it. It can also be quite expanded. We can notice that was happening to me in Burma. I had to sort of expand because if I tried to get too too narrow, I was suffering a lot. So, oh, there's people working and there's children playing and there's heat and there's bugs and there's spiders and ah, mindful, knowing, I'm just knowing it's happening. And what happens is the mind starts to become quite quite light and joyous because it's it's knowing what's happening and it's and there's freedom and there's space in it because the mind isn't clinging there's not an attachment there's not an aversion the mind is with things as they are so if you're having a retreat that's a lot of sadness you're having a sadness retreat there's nothing wrong with it that's just what's happening be mindful of it If you're having a lot of anger, have an anger retreat. Of course, it may change, but while you're in it, this is what's happening in your retreat. So this this is what there is to be mindful. It's not something to get away from. It's where we are in this moment. If you're having a joy retreat, if you're having a lot of joy, it's a joy retreat. If you're having a lot of grief at the sorrow in this world, then be in that because that's what's true for you. Let it be there. My friend and mentor Joanna Macy the other night was speaking to a group of people about how to be with the suffering in this time. And she said, be with your suffering, really experiencing it fully because this is your love. This is your love for the world. So this can be your retreat. This can be your practice. And of course, it's going to change all the time. This is what happens. But can we have a mind? Can we have a mind that has a capacity to be with anything, whatever is arising? This is sort of the promise of this practice. Eventually, we see that it's just anger. It's just fear. It's just pain. It's just what's happening. I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, my body's having a lot of pain, but my heart is quite happy right now. It's really possible. I mean, this, as I said, it's the promise of this practice to have a mind of peace and equanimity in spite of the circumstances. So I'll tell you, this is another, this story happened to me again in Burma, and it was another moment where this point really got driven home to me, what I hope I'm conveying. And I have to sort of set it up to tell it to you because it's, it's slightly complex, but let's just say when you guys eat here in, at Spirit Rock, it's a really great situation. The food is wonderful. 
You can have as much silence as you want. If you want to go sit outside, you can do that. You can sit alone. No one's going to look at you. No one's going to bother you. You may be sitting across from someone, but they're pretty much respecting you and not paying attention. So it's, it's, this, it's this very nice place to practice this really kind of silent, precise noting of our eating and being with our experience. Med- eating in Burma, and this particular monastery in Burma, was, for me, a nightmare. It was, I have to describe it. Okay, so you're in this big room, and you're, I was sitting at a table, usually, which was quite large, and there were about four women around us, and they put all the food in the center of the table, and you have to, in order to get the food, you have to sort of notice what other people are eating and making sure that they're not running out of food. So you're trying to be mindful. You're trying to be really practice mindfulness, but you're also being mindful of what everybody else is eating because you need to pass the food because the table is so big. And then, meanwhile, the monks and the abbot of the monastery are all up on this dais staring at you to make sure that you're being mindful. So would you like it if sort of the rest of us walked around and sort of looked and, are you being mindful? So they're staring at you while you're eating. You're trying to be mindful. You're, at, you're supposed to be eating quite slowly. I was really unhappy with the food. So I'm eating this food that I don't like. And at the same time, there are people watching because people donate the food for the monastery. So they come from all over the place and they give us the food and then they want to watch you eat because I guess, I don't know, it gives them pleasure, which is a wonderful thing, but it's not, it doesn't feel so wonderful when it's you they're watching. And then sometimes, occasionally, they're taking photographs. Sometimes they're, um, they're one, actually, a couple times they were videoing it. And um, if you have any food issues whatsoever, it's really, really unpleasant. And this particular time I was, I was, medit- I was eating and all of these things that I mentioned were happening. And there was a woman who was, there was something slightly off with her, but she was, there were lots of flies, of course. Oh, the flies were dive bombing into the curries. And so she took the, she had this fan and she was fanning us, which was embarrassing enough. But meanwhile, she would take the fan, she'd take the end of the fan, she'd stick it into the curry and she'd flick the fly out. And I was just sitting there going, what is going on? I was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier and hating this and hating this food. And what am I doing here? On and on and on. And finally, as I was just getting so worked up, this voice in my head said, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. And in that moment, everything shifted. Nothing changed externally. Everything continued as I described. But my mind let go. And I was suddenly, I was like, oh, there's the bugs and the flies and there's the people watching me and there's the food and there's me hating the food. And complete relaxation, happiness, peace, ease in the midst of what was a really horrible thing in my mind. We all have the capacity to be with anything with equanimity and peace. And it only takes one one moment. And if I said to you right now, everybody be mindful. You did it, right? It wasn't hard. Just maybe noticed your foot or something. We can be mindful in any moment and we can we can wake up to the fullness of the, of our experience, to all that's happening. We can even when it's really difficult, even when it's hard. The mind can be free 
no matter what. Joseph Goldstein says, and you have to listen carefully, it doesn't matter what it is that the mind isn't clinging to. Does that make sense? doesn't matter what it is the mind isn't clinging to. In other words, we can be free in the midst of anything. And the result is a mind that's expanded and joyous and happy. And practice can even be really quite amusing if you let it go there. I'll just tell this one last story to end. It doesn't, I'm not sure if it relates, but it's a Burma story I like. Um, <laughs> there were lots of bugs, as I said. <laughs> and there was a big light. There was this huge overhead light. And all these, in the night, all these millions and millions of bugs and beetles would gather. And I would have to walk back to my room really, really slowly. And this Burmese woman was really afraid of the dark. So I think what she used to do is trail me when I walk back from the meditation hall to my room. So she'd walk behind me about, I don't know, 10 feet. And as I'm walking, I'm getting closer and closer to this light with this giant pool of bugs, including this one that was about the size of my fist that was flying around. It looked like a wind-up toy. I got closer and closer, and I was just really mindful And suddenly I got really scared and I noticed the fear and I stopped and I went, fear. And then about from 10 feet back, I heard, what happened? (laughs) And I said, really mindfully, I said, bugs. (laughs) And she kind of walked up close to me and she said, one, "One, two, three, run. (laughs) We both ran through the pool of light. It was really fun. The mind wasn't clinging. It's possible. So why don't we um, sit? Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no left out. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 9, 2004. It is an offering. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.